Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Cemetery Project. The activities of the Global Cemetery Project you can find at uh, globalcemeteryproject.com. There you will be able to identify our e-journal, which currently uh, is a special issue looking at strengthening uh, the G20. You can see our three podcast series. Uh, You can see our YouTube uh, series as well, our video series. And uh, you can see uh, some of the research work that we're carrying on in the China and the West Dialogue Project. uh, and, uh, And it includes, of course, the work we've been doing on strengthening the G20. It's my real pleasure today uh, to welcome into the virtual studio uh, Susan Thornton. Susan was uh, Assistant Secretary of State uh, for East Asian Affairs at the uh, Department of State before she chose to retire in 2018. She had a 28-year diplomatic career focused primarily on East and Central Asia. Uh, We have been lucky enough, in fact, to have her uh, join us over the last several years in the China and the West Dialogue Project, although almost all of that was virtually. Susan is currently the visiting lecturer in law at the Yale Law School and senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Center at Yale as well. So, uh, Please welcome into the virtual studio our good colleague, Susan Thornton. So welcome into the the virtual studio, Susan. It's a pleasure to have you with us. It's great to be back with you, Alan. Oh, super. So, uh, Susan, uh, for some time now, uh, former Democratic officials, now, of course, they are Biden officials, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, others, have declared the era of engagement dead uh, to be replaced in the writings. I mean, variety of titles, but for lack of a a better one, let me just um, point to their view of uh, the U.S.-China relationship as competition without catastrophe. What does this mean uh, for U.S. foreign policy? Thanks very much, Alan, for for setting out that, you know, kind of, framing for our discussion, because I think that leads us into a lot of interesting areas. First of all, on the question of, you know, the era of engagement is over or um, U.S.-China engagement was a failure. I mean, I frankly don't see it that way at all. And I don't think it really reflects the reality of the successes that were racked up over the course of 40 years of sort of U.S., Um, so-called engagement with China. I mean, I think of it as mostly just U.S. opening to China or U.S. diplomacy with China. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure about this word engagement. I never heard it really before, you know, kind of a recent characterization. But, um, you know, I think if you look at what actually occurred during that period of time, you know, the U.S.-China efforts against the Soviet Union, the maintenance of a stable and peaceful relationship across the Taiwan Strait that allowed Taiwan to flourish as a incredibly mm. modern and dynamic democracy, um, you know, and also saw the modernization and 
phenomenal growth of the Chinese economy and the burgeoning of relations, um, economic relations between not only the U.S. and China, but China and the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. and certainly a lot of opening up of Chinese society. Now, people make the claim that, you know, the U.S. expected that China would democratize before it gets rich, so-called, or that we were trying to affect a kind of transition to liberal democracy in China. I mean, I don't um, think that was ever really the case. Um, I don't think that's a realistic description of what any uh, politician that was pursuing this policy had in mind. There were a lot of U.S. interests at stake and a lot of interest groups in the United States that were pushing for, um, you know, continuing to have interconnections with China, particularly economic interests after uh, the tragedy of Tiananmen in 1989, um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um you know, kind of took away that rationale, that Cold War rationale that had um, uh, been so compelling in the beginning of the relationship. But nevertheless, so many compelling reasons to continue, um, you know, working with China. And I don't think, you know, people who look back now and say, oh, the opening was a mistake or that there was some kind of alternative uh, option that was out there that we could have pursued is a little mm-hmm. bit of a of a Monday mm-hmm. morning quarterback operation. <laughs> so, uh, in addition, uh, you can see in current Biden foreign policy uh, an emphasis on autocracy versus democracy. Um, that often you know, the president says it, President Biden and others say it too. So, what are the practical consequences of that kind of frame? of American foreign policy in the face of U.S.-China relations. Yeah, I mean, I think this autocracy versus democracy uh, framing is, um, you know, it was a a good idea in the context in which it was conceived potentially, but not a good idea in the context in which it's now being rolled out and implemented. I mean, I (laughs) think this is something that comes directly from, I think, President Biden, Um, You know, he's very much bullish on U.S. democracy, on the U.S. system, on, you know, openness and free market, you know, kind of impetuses to Mm -hmm. drive potential and drive flourishing. And, you know, one of the things I think that has really shaken probably him and his administration is the perils that they see. Um, democracy kind of heading for, um, mostly in a domestic context, I would say. And this is where the kind of domestic concerns are spilling over into this kind of sweeping generalization about how the whole world is, you know, poised on the brink of this cataclysmic struggle between democracies and autocracies. I think really what it's about is, you know, the U.S. needs to, as Biden is also fond of saying, you know, get its own house in order. And on democracy in particular, we have some, you know, obvious but specific problems that need to be fixed and Mm -hmm. reformed. And we need to do that. And if we would focus more on doing that and less on whether or not there's some global affliction with democracy, I think that would be resource and time better spent. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think this democracy versus autocracy framing is not that much shared by other countries in the world. And they actually, you know, 
are not willing really to sign up behind this kind of division of the world into these binary blocks um, because they know the world's more complicated than that. I mean, there are all kinds of countries. Uh, some of them are close allies that, you know, would, would not be in clearly one or the other of those two camps. So I think, you know, it's unfortunate that we've morphed this problem, which I think is mostly a domestic focused one into mm-hmm. Into our foreign policy. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's going to be going ahead, but I think it's an unfortunate distraction and and it kind of undercuts, frankly, our our credibility and our leverage um, by, you know, closing space where we should be trying to keep it open for, you know, working with other countries on pressing problems. Well, you can, and you can see the the practical nature of that. You know, he's uh, apparently the administration is determined to have a summit for democracy in December, I believe. And um, needless to say, I, I'm not sure who's exactly on the invitation list, but we can be pretty sure it doesn't include China. So it does seem to me that that, that framing. Ex, you know, excludes uh, China, China in, you know, uh, some of significant American foreign policy activity. Yeah. And this gets to, you know, one of the issues that I have with this sort of current approach, which is this seeming approach to sort of building up, you know, coalitions, um, mm-hmm. us versus them kind of style coalitions, Mm-hmm. You know, we have a coalition seemingly with the Europeans against China for human rights. We have a, a coalition with maybe some of our allies in the Pacific, Japan, Australia. You know, the UK is not in the Pacific, but maybe they want to be at this point. I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, They may not want to be closer <laughs> to Europe, that's for sure. <laughs> but anyway, we have a coalition with them against China on security right. issues. We have right. the Quad Coalition that's, you know, basically about security, although no one's allowed to utter the sentiments anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just don't see how, you know, blocking China out of organizations or creating these, you know, kind of coalitions against China is really going to get us to where we need to go. And I think um, it's going to have the effect of, you know, sort of pushing this binary division, which I think is not really what we should be trying to do. We should be Mm -hmm. trying to work with China on a lot of issues. I mean, in fact, we need their cooperation on many issues. Um, Mm -hmm. First and foremost, you know, climate change, as has been pointed out so many times. So I think, you know, this notion of kind of excluding China from things and making everything about competition without catastrophe is is kind of a dead end as far as what we need to be doing to shore up both our own prestige and influence in the international system, but shore up also the international system itself. Let me, let me take you to kind of the bilateral relationship. So uh, American researchers organized by the National Committee on American Foreign Policy and uh, the American Friends Service Committee undertook a systematic audit of the U.S.-China Strategic and Economic Dialogue, the SNED, which was kind of the platform of U.S.-China relations, certainly during the Obama years and then into the Trump years and then it 
it fell away, right? Um, and uh, and that uh, you know research attempted to see what the benefits were expected from such a you know a bilateral diplomacy because it had come in for significant amount of criticism. Um, you know, just a talk shop, uh, you know, the various kinds of things people will say. And <clears throat> you were involved in this project. Uh, and maybe you can describe what this audit was about and what it did show about the, you know, the formalization of the relationship through the SNED project. Yeah, thanks. That's um, a great question. And thanks for flagging this research, which I hope will get some more attention because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the U.S.-China relationship has now devolved into these caricature narratives, I call them, that's sort of <laughs> these cartoons about, you know, things that people assume are true that couldn't be further from the truth. And one of the things that's in that category is this notion that, you know, in negotiations with or talking to China, A, you can't get anywhere and B, well, they never follow through on their commitments anyway. So why bother? Mm -hmm. And in this audit, which um, came about when some young researchers discovered the database on all of the outcomes from the um, strategic and economic dialogue and came to me and said, you know, sh can we can we put together this project to sort of go in and see how many of these commitments were actually upheld by the Chinese? Because as you rightly pointed out, like some of these commitments went for many years into the future, but the Obama administration ended and they wanted to right. see how many of them were, were followed through on by the Chinese and also how many did the Chinese follow through on even after the thing was over mm -hmm. um, because they had committed to it. And what they found was that out of the, I think, 900 and something outcomes, you know, the Chinese implemented and followed through on their commitments in I think it was two thirds or three quarters of the cases. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those cases, they followed through and, and did what they were supposed to do even after Obama was out of office. So in other words, they could have just sloughed that off, but they didn't do that. Um, and they also looked at the U.S. implementation of its commitments. There are many fewer, I think, U.S. commitments um, and maybe they were more vague. So it's harder to tell. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it's hard to tell and measure exactly whether the, a commitment was achieved or not. But the U.S. didn't stack up as well on implementation of its commitments as the, as the Chinese did. So I think, you know, it's important to get this kind of ground truth out there. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, the Chinese, you know, implementation is not perfect. Their system is very messy and it's sometimes difficult to get them to, to do things, to commit to things and then to implement those things. But they do, I think, by and large, try to stick to the commitments. And these were in areas, you know, across the board from economic issues to um, clean energy and climate change commitments to, mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of military strategic type issues. Um, so it was really a multifaceted discussion that we were having with the Chinese. And it not only helped on these commitments, but also just on having counterparts with whom you could have a channel of communication so that you could make sure that the signals that we were sending were being received accurately. And that is a okay. problem. You know, we have language difficulties. We have communication differences. We have media differences. We have all these, you know, uh, incompatibilities, I would say. And so it makes 
communication between the US and China, very important. And this platform definitely did establish a lot of channels of communication. Now, some people say it was a waste of time, a waste of money. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, diplomacy is cheap compared to the alternatives. So I, <laughs> I don't see it that way at all. Okay. So, so a kind of final word on engagement or, you know, the competition and confrontation and collaboration. Uh, just last month, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi told the Biden administration climate envoy, John Kerry, and you'd mentioned uh, climate change, um, that uh, China-U.S. Uh, cooperation on climate change, which is often pointed to as a possible area of collaboration uh, with China, cannot be divorced, he said, from the overall situation of uh, China-U.S. relations. Wang Yi called the United States uh, uh, to stop viewing China as a threat, rival, and seize containing and suppressing China all over the world, adding that he who tied the knot should untie it. Uh, The ball is now in the U.S. court, he said. Uh, It would seem that, uh, you know, that China, at least at this level, insists on kind of linkage relations and that there was no compartmentalization uh, with respect to some of the Biden official, you know, wish list, if you might call it like climate change, right? Suggesting, of course, that um, the possibilities of collaboration aren't, you know, strong if if the Chinese insist on linkage. So where are we then at the end of the day on engagement policy when you see a statement like that from someone as high up as Wang Yi? Yeah, I think this is like a fundamental misunderstanding of where we've been with China and where we're going to be going with China. People think that during the 40 years of engagement, somehow U.S.-China relations were sweetness and light and everything was rosy, you know, and but but then we were fooled and China took advantage. And now we, you know, now we're in a different era. I mean, I have to tell you that U.S.-China relations over those 40 years were anything but, you know, rosy and easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Relations were filled with tensions. They were filled with competition. And they were filled sometimes even with uh, confrontation and contestation. I mean, we had the 1995-96 Taiwan Strait crisis um, that involved shelling. Um, So... You know, we had the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia. We had the EP3 incident. So this is not, you know, um, some kind of easy relationship that was just, you know, managed in, in with very kid gloves because we wanted to treat China in a friendly way. That was not what was going on. And I think now, the, but the, the difference now is that the Chinese believe that we are going to treat them with hostility, mm-hmm. that we are trying to damage them, that we are trying to systematically undermine their interests and blunt their development. And that is a categorically different set of assumptions that they have about what we are trying to do um, vis-a-vis China's interests. And and that's true. I mean, we have been clear in the past during the engagement period 
that we, um, while we had a lot of problems with a lot of things that China uh, did behavior-wise on things like human rights with respect to Taiwan, with respect to other things, for example, um, selling weapons into the developing world, um, you know, that we fundamentally were, were committed to the relationship and we were not trying to um, undertake the failure of China or the overthrow of its regime. Mm-hmm. You know, now, having gone through the Trump period and entering into the Biden period, there's a definitely a sense of uncertainty, if not extreme doubt on the part of the Chinese about what we're up to, what our base um, fundamental approach is with respect to China. Are we trying to undermine it, Mm -hmm. um, undercut the regime, um, contain China, or are, are we trying to manage our differences with China within this more complex architecture that at the end of the day, does not wish harm to China, but wishes China to um, progress and be successful in the world in a way that's commensurate with, you know, our interests and the interests of the rest of the international community. So, you know, until we can clarify that, I mean, I think any reasonable person would say, you know, if my, uh, you know, competitor is trying to break my legs, then I am not going to cooperate with them on, you know, anything because I need to protect my, my interests and my mm-hmm. security. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what Wang Yi is, is reflecting. Now people in the U S would say, you know, that's, that's just an exaggeration for effect on the part of Wang Yi. Of course, the Chinese know that we're not trying to harm them. I mean, I think that that is debatable. And at the very least, the Chinese need to hear something different sort of clearly from the top of the Biden administration before they're going to be willing to go back to, you know, what in essence we had before, which is this complex compartmentalization of issues where you have some places where you're working together, you have some places where you're competing, and you have some places where you're just never going to agree you know, mm-hmm. and you have to try to, um, you know, manage your way through push it. and shove and manage <laughs> your way through it. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't really see if we're being completely realistic and honest how you're going to have anything but that the Chinese know the relationship is complicated. We know that. Mm-hmm. And they're very pragmatic. So they've been willing to have this relationship in all of its complexities Um, and work with us in areas of common interest. But they're not going to do that if they think we are attacking all of their interests. Mm -hmm. Well, let's turn to one final area uh, for today, uh, Susan. (laughs) That talk about um, conflictual, and that's Taiwan. Uh, And uh, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, President Xi uh, in Beijing suggested that Taiwan independence, I'm quoting here, at least the English, was a grave lurking threat to national rejuvenation. China wanted peaceful unification, it said, but added nobody should underestimate the staunch determination, firm will, and powerful ability of the Chinese people to defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. And as you know, further, uh, the Chinese 
sent large, over a period of time, large number of fighters and bombers uh, repeatedly into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. That began around October 1st. I mean, what's what's happening there, Susan? What, what, what yeah. do we take from no, that? No, it's, it's a very good question. Um, this issue is the fundamental central issue in U.S.-China relations going all the way back to the Nixon-Kissinger opening. It's the one issue on which we never agreed Mm-hmm. Um, even uh, in the formal, um, you know, diplomatic normalization, we never agreed on Taiwan. Um, it was papered over. We, you know, Deng Xiaoping said he would go ahead with normalization, but, you know, our continued weapon sales to Taiwan were unacceptable, but he was going to go ahead with normalization anyway. And it just was was never uh, resolved. Reagan tried to resolve that problem through the third communique in 1982. Mm-hmm. That kind of has, uh, has gone by the wayside, fallen apart, resulted in, you know, I mean, it's just been a never ending um, source of contention in the relationship and disagreement. And I think um, the miracle is that we've been able to sustain uh status quo of peace and prosperity across the strait, not only peace and prosperity, but Taiwan and China are are major trading partners. 40% of Taiwan's exports or so go Mm -hmm. to the mainland. I mean, it's um, the relationship has burgeoned to a degree that no one could have expected or anticipated. And yet the political, uh, environment and communication has become more and more and more fraught Mm -hmm. across the strait. And um, the U.S. involvement in in that is um, continually being, in my view, kind of pushed and elevated. The question is, why is anyone picking a fight over this issue Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't need to be flaring up um, in any way right now, especially given all of the other problems that Washington, Beijing, and Taipei are facing right now. Um, and that is a good question. Some people would say that Xi Jinping is picking the fight because he's uh, got an election coming up next year, let's just say. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorts. he's yep. got a lot of pressures at home and he's feeling uh, ambitious and he's got this timetable for rejuvenation. I think that that uh, explanation is not wholly satisfying to me, um, in part because I know that a lot of the so-called military aggression that China is cited to be applying to Taiwan is actually in response to military moves that go unreported in all these media stories that started um, from the U.S. side or U.S. and its allied side. So the most recent, for example, incursion of all of those fighters and bombers, bombers yeah. um, which, which are, which are merely passing kind of through the Taiwan Strait and going to the South of Taiwan. They're not going into Taiwan airspace. Airspace, right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was done because there's a three carrier battle group exercise just off the coast of Taiwan on the other side among the U.S., Japan, U.K., Netherlands, Australia, and a bunch of other people. Um, So there are things going on that 
the popular media is not accurately, in my view, portraying, but it's this kind of tit for tat mm -hmm. escalation of a classic security dilemma where one side is trying to make sure the other knows how strong it is so it won't make any moves. And then the other side has to do the same. And then we just keep going up, up, up in a spiral. Um, and I think there have been a lot of things said that have been unfortunate, that have spun up uh, motions on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. I think that Washington is unfortunately moving toward using Taiwan in the U.S.-China competition, which is something that the Trump administration started, unfortunately, but something that we had refrained from doing um, in over the 40 years in which we managed to keep the peace across the strait. I don't think it's good for Taiwan what's happening right now. I'm not sure why Taiwan is also, frankly, in my view, um, mixing it up a little bit on the provocation and, and raising the rhetoric side. I don't know why President Tsai Ing-wen, for example, had to publish an article in Foreign Affairs recently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, these kinds of things are just escalatory and don't, um, you know, accomplish anything other than making people feel like they got their licks in. And I'm not sure what it is that people think the end result of all of this is going to be, but I can tell you, Alan, that it is not going to be as good as the situation that Taiwan has right now. Right now? Well, and one final thought on this, and it's a reference to, uh, he was retiring, Admiral uh, Philip Davidson, right? Who uh, is was the... Um, uh, he spoke before the uh, uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, and he was the Indo-Pacific uh, Command, right? He was the head of the Indo-Pacific Command, and he gave, uh, you know, talk, or not a talk, but had questions and answers with members of the committee. And he said, Taiwan is clearly one of their ambitions before then. And I think that the threat is manifest during this decade, in fact, in the next six years. How is that? I mean, how is that yeah. colored relations um, and or impacted on uh, Washington? That kind of uh, that kind of statement, and how realistic is it? Uh, well, um, there are a lot of angles there. I think you know the people who are the most alarmist mm -hmm. about a potential Chinese military invasion of Taiwan are the U.S. Navy. Mm -hmm. And that's because they are the people who look most closely at the capabilities that China is developing uh, with respect to, you know, a potential um, contingency on Taiwan. Um, but it's also, and we have to be honest about this, um, you know, it's also a major resource um, gravitational pull <laughs> Uh, for the U.S. Navy uh, with respect to the U.S. Congress. So, you know, we can't say that the U.S. Navy is exaggerating this or, or um, you know, uh, pointing up threats that don't exist, but it isn't uh, necessarily a completely disinterested evaluation for the Admiral of Indo-PACOM to make. Um <laughs> And, you know, he's one regional commander. There are regional commanders all over the world. There's a joint staff in Washington. There are people looking over, you know, the entire scope of the 
DOD modernization project and everyone's got to fight to get their piece. So I think, um, you know, we should not pay, you know, undue attention to what the assessments of sort of individual U.S., you know, uh, regional commanders or naval commanders assess. I think what the real issue is not Chinese capabilities. The real issue is the political environment and the intentions of China and how they're balanced off against all of the other aspects of, and fallout from a kind of aggressive move against Taiwan that China would have to sustain. That's the real calculation. It's not really a question of how many missiles or ships China has or how far they can shoot, but it's really about what's in the head of the Chinese leadership. Um, what's, you know, kind of pressures are they feeling from the Chinese people? And also, you know, how big a threat do they think it is that they're going to lose Taiwan? And we should be not, we should, on that score, we have something to say and something to do about it, as do the people on Taiwan. And we should not be uh, pushing the Chinese leadership to think that they are in danger of losing Taiwan. So that's the space where I think we should be doing the most work. And on the military front, you know, I like Teddy Roosevelt, talk softly and carry a big stick. Instead, we're kind of doing the opposite right now. And that is not going to end well. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you. Thank you, Susan, for the, the insights on both, you know, Washington behavior and uh, the, the Taiwan activity as well, which is a key element in the U.S.-China relationship. Thank you for discussing those issues. You're welcome. It's great to, great to be with you, and um, I'm, I'm happy. I want everybody to be involved in these issues because it could affect them directly at some point in the future. 